0: All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, starting in chapter 42. This is, we're coming back after kind of a three week layoff uh, to the end of our relationship series. And uh want to just close this series with this study this morning. You know, we have uh, a busy week. We have Thanksgiving, some of you traveling, going away, some uh, situations where you're just. Thrilled to see family that you haven't seen in a while in some situations where you're a little less than thrilled, but you have to meet with them anyway, right? And nobody has that situation, I hope, but maybe you do. And sometimes the holidays become a little bit unhappy and they become a little bit stressful because there's kind of a cloud that hangs over the table. And there are things that have been said in the past or things that are underlying or resentment or or situations where there's tension, or whatever the case may be. You guys know what I'm talking about. And and that becomes less than thrilling. That actually becomes something uh, that, that maybe you dread. Maybe there was something said about the type of stuffing that was served 10 years ago, and nobody's ever quite gotten past it. Or maybe there's a relationship that's stressful within the family, or somebody that they disapprove of, or, or whatever that might be, or... Or maybe there's, there's just a general disappointment. I don't mean to be depressing this morning. I'm just trying to be honest. So there's this tension in it, and it kind of lingers like an emotional stomach ache year after year after year. Well, there's no family in the Bible that, that may have been maybe more awkward or dysfunctional than the one that we're going to study this morning because here the family members commit an offense that, that really would never be easily forgotten. Certainly not at the Thanksgiving table. Because ten of the brothers sell one of the brothers. They get so angry and so jealous and so frustrated with him that they find a passing caravan of Midianites and they sell him. We know the story well. The man's name was Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. He is an advanced picture of what Christ is going to go through and what Christ is going through to accomplish. In fact, there's somebody that researched, and I can send you the link if you want it, 60 similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ. He's really probably the greatest uh, advance sign of what Christ will do of anybody that we have in the Bible. And probably the thing that stands out the most in terms of the similarities of their lives is the fact that each extended forgiveness when it wasn't deserved. Each put it out there when when it wasn't being asked for. Each was betrayed. Each was sinned against. Each had the relationship broken. And, and each had the opportunity to pay back people what they deserve for their sin. Instead, each offered forgiveness. Now, in our relationships, we've done a lot of different studies about the different facets of relationships. But in our relationships, forgiveness is either the greatest point of hindrance, or the greatest point of healing. Where there is a lack of forgiveness, the relationship stays fractured. There's a problem, there's a, there's a bump in the road, so to speak, that, that will not be ever resolved until forgiveness is extended. Where forgiveness is extended, healing takes place very quickly. And What we decide and how we decide to either impart forgiveness or withhold forgiveness greatly determines the long-term effect on the relationship. Now, Joseph was the 11th of 12 boys. His father's name was Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. And early on, Jacob favors Joseph. He gives him a coat that's very distinctive, made of many colors, and, and there's, a, there's a tension immediately within the family because it's obvious that Jacob has a, a unique love Joseph And all the brothers feel it very acutely, and there's great jealousy and resentment and, and bitterness to the point, as I said, where finally one day they've had enough and they sell him into slavery to the Midianites who then take him to Egypt. They lie to their father. They say that Joseph was killed by an animal. They even take his coat and cut it up and pour blood on it and say, this is what happened to our poor brother. We found this and he must be dead. Meanwhile, Joseph goes down to Egypt and he finds favor with Pharaoh and he moves into a high ranking official's house as a servant. But uh, the high ranking official's wife, Potiphar, uh, she has designs on Joseph and decides to falsely accuse him. And of course, that erupts because he's a Hebrew slave. He's sent to jail. And as he's sitting in jail, he meets two men who work for the king a baker and a cupbearer. And they have dreams, he interprets the dreams. One of them is destined to die, and one of them is destined to live. The cupbearer gets out, goes back to the palace. Joseph, as he's leaving, says, hey, remember me, but, you know, do, do a man a favor. I helped you out. Cupbearer proceeds to forget him. Time goes on. Joseph continues to sit there. And then one day, Pharaoh has a very strange dream about cows and sheaves of wheat, seven of each. The, the thin ones eating the healthy ones. And he doesn't know what to do. And he calls his his men and he says, what, what does this mean? And they don't have a clue. And the cupbearer's standing there. And he goes, oh, wait a second, I know a guy. And they bring up Joseph out of jail and he interprets the dream. He says, Pharaoh, this represents the fact that there's going to be seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of severe famine. You need to prepare now. And Pharaoh's so impressed by his ability that that he makes Joseph a ruler in the nation, in fact, second only to Pharaoh. Joseph continues to enjoy favor and he prepares the nation. They stock up food for seven years and prepare for this great famine that's going to come. Now, the famine had three major purposes. The first purpose was that it was to humble Pharaoh and Egypt. It was to show them that they weren't as great And as powerful as they thought they were. You would have thought that they would have learned that lesson. Year after year after year. But apparently they hadn't. Apparently they didn't know that. And then you've got Joseph's faithfulness. You've got how God honored Joseph's faithfulness. And put him in a position of blessing and influence. And then you've got the third cause. And the third cause is really what we want to study this morning. The third reason for the famine was to bring Joseph and his brother, Joseph's brothers to Egypt to meet him again. Now it seems like a huge effort on God's part over the course of maybe 13 or 14 years to, to go to that effort to, to bring seven years of abundance and seven years of famine just to get Joseph's brothers back to Joseph. God could do that any way he wants. He could just incite them to go to Egypt. There there are many ways that God can work to accomplish his purposes. But sometimes God takes what seems to us to be a very roundabout way, a very extensive, complex plan to get us to the point that he wants us to do what he's going to do. And we look at it, we go, well, that's frustrating, and I'm going through trial, or there's difficulty. But we need to have a, a very long term perspective and a very eternal mindset when it comes to what God is doing. Even in terms of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks world events and things that are going on. Now, Israel and, and Hamas are going at each other. We saw that three weeks ago. We know that's not a surprise. Nobody should go, what in the world's going on? We know what's going on. But we need to have a very long term perspective. Of, of world events and personal trials and circumstances because Hebrews 11.1 one says, faith is the evidence of things that are not seen. It's seeing what's not yet seen. And That doesn't mean that we're all mystical. It means that we shouldn't get stressed and worried in the moment, but we should always know that the Lord is faithful and he will protect and provide for his people when we trust in him. doesn't mean we won't have difficulty. It means that we need to understand his purpose. Listen, if God's purpose right now is to humble us and draw us back to him, how many are going to say amen to that? And if God's purpose is to prepare us to meet him soon, even better. But God is working and God has a plan. Now, Joseph, as he's sitting in jail, as he's rising to power in Egypt, has that very unique perspective. And the huge difference between him and his brothers is highlighted all throughout The passage. You can go all the way back to chapter 38 and continue to go past chapter 45, which is what we're going to look at this morning. They were selfish and self serving and and they looked at everything from their own perspective and what they got. Joseph is humble and he's heavily minded and he sees everything through the perspective of what God's doing. And that's the key to this text and it's the key to what we're going to talk about when we talk about forgiveness. Because forgiveness can only happen in our hearts by having a heavenly perspective and a heavenly understanding of God's purpose. Otherwise, we're going to react the wrong way. Otherwise, when his brothers show up, he's going to lash out them and be ticked at them. Because for a dozen years plus, he's had nothing but disappointment and loneliness and frustration and maybe even some questions for God. And now as he rises to power... He has the opportunity. Now he's second only to Pharaoh. He's he's the guy. He's not just the vice president, because vice presidents don't do anything, right? He's He's the guy. Pharaoh looks to him. When Pharaoh's not around, it's like, you're the man. And don't you think from a human perspective, now he's saying, time for some payback. Let's find Potiphar's wife. Wonder where she's hanging around. Let's have a little discussion to her about false accusation. And let's make her pay with some jail time. And that cupbearer, where is he? Hey, cupbearer, get over here. Let's talk about forgetfulness and lack of gratitude. Maybe you need to go back into jail and remind yourself of of what you need to do. And I think I'll hunt down my brothers. I'm second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. Maybe I'll hunt down my brothers. And I'll show them what it means to settle an old score. I mean, they treated me like a common criminal. See, we've got to, as we read scripture, we've got to inject real life emotion into it. Think about times when you've been hurt and you've been betrayed and you're stuck in that hurt. Maybe some of you are dealing with it right now, even today. You feel that pain and that anguish and, and and that hurt. And you know that those feelings, while valid, aren't necessarily holy. And you're frustrated and you're angry and you're ticked off. Now how do we reconcile those legitimate hurts? Because Joseph's hurts are legitimate, right? This this is not something he imagined up. He's been betrayed and sold by his brothers. That's a legitimate pain. So how do we reconcile legitimate hurt with a spiritual mindset? What do we do with the words of Jesus? Because right after the Lord's Prayer... He says, if you forgive others for their sin, the Lord will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, the Lord will not forgive your sins. Now, that's rough. Do we do we really believe that that God means that? Does he really hold us to that kind of expectation? And how are we supposed to do that? Because let's be real blunt this morning. Some people don't deserve forgiveness, right? Anybody know somebody? Don't raise your hand because it may be the person next to you. Some people don't deserve forgiveness, right? They haven't treated you well. They they they've sat on you, so to speak, emotionally. And we might think about forgiving them if they repent a lot, but we're going to need some extra groveling. Right, don't just come to me and say you're sorry. I'm really going to you're going to have to prove this now. You're going to you're going to have to get down on your face. You think Joseph felt that? He had to replay the scene. And we're going to read in a minute. What will happen if I ever see those guys again? What's going to happen if we ever cross paths? Well, let's find out. Chapter 42. we got a lot to read this morning. Starting verse 6. Joseph was ruler over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly and said, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food because the whole world's in turmoil at this point. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he would had about them and said to them, you're spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. They said, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. That's a lie. Your servants are not spies, but he said to them, no, you've come to look at the undeveloped parts of our land. They said, your servants are 12 in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. How that had to sting Joseph. He said to them, it is as I said to you, your spies, by this you'll be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You will not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there's truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely your spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. They said to one another, notice what they see here now, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them saying, didn't I tell you he was the one that objected to it all because they wanted to kill him? Do not sin against the boy and you wouldn't listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood everything they were saying, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept, but when they returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for his journey, and it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there, and as one of them opened a sack to give his donkey food at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of the sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money's been returned and behold it's even in my sack and their hearts sank and they turned trembling to one another saying what is this that God has done to us now throughout time the 10 brothers especially when joseph was with them the 10 brothers had failed to recognize and to acknowledge god's hand on joseph they saw it but they were so jealous of it that they couldn't see that this was of the lord So now God puts them in a situation where they can't possibly miss it. Years after they sold him, the famine becomes so acute that the whole world feels it. And it forces them as Jews to go to Egypt for help. Now that is not an incidental detail in any way. Because Egypt will be a symbol of God's deliverance. Egypt will be a symbol of how God works to help his people. So they go down to Egypt, which is evil and which is godless and which worships the sun and treats Pharaoh as a god and is full of mysticism. Egypt has stocked up seven years of grain at Joseph's request because he knows the famine's coming. And now the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, go down there and they need that grain for their survival. Or do they? To go to Egypt was humbling. But it should have reminded them of God's faithfulness and God's provision. They were the children of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And they should have recognized famine as displeasure from the Lord over what they had done. Because famine in the Bible always equals judgment. So they go to Pharaoh's palace and little did they know that the man they're going to find is their brother Joseph. They've essentially forgotten him. They've essentially put that behind them, but God hadn't. He had been working all along. There's a spiritual principle there that the Lord is always doing work, even though we might not see it and we might not recognize it. No matter what is going on in your life right now and in my life right now, you can be sure this morning that God is not passive. God's work is not stagnant. God is not standing there this morning going, I'm just going to watch. That Rhodes guy, he's going through some stuff. He's got some things ahead of him. I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kinda let it ride. God is constantly moving, constantly orchestrating, constantly creating situations that will stretch our faith and enhance our faith and bless us if we remain faithful. While the brothers had betrayed Joseph and forgotten about it and gotten through the stress of telling Jacob and gone on with their lives. God was moving Joseph from place to place to place to Pharaoh's palace, to jail, back to Pharaoh's palace, now standing before them. God never stopped moving to get to this point. Recognize that in your life this morning. God has not stopped moving. He is trying to accomplish something for you. And it is good. And even in pain right now, even in the worst pain, God is moving to do great things. He had sent Joseph there, and he has used him to prepare for a famine that nobody could have anticipated, but the Lord told him about it and said, prepare. Joseph never imagined, as God put him in that position, that one day his brothers were going to be standing right in front of them. But now here they are. And it's fascinating, if you go back a page to chapter 41, verse 55, that Pharaoh, who was like a god and presented himself like a god to the people... Now, when the people come to him and say, Pharaoh, those famine, help us. Pharaoh doesn't say, I have a solution. He says, I got somebody that can help us. His name is Joseph. Joseph is a Jew. Joseph had been a slave. He's the last person that Pharaoh should look to and say, I don't have the answers, but he does. Pharaoh is de-elevating himself to promote a Jewish slave as the one that can save Egypt. What a picture. But there's more to it than that. Imagine how when the people came to get grain. I was thinking this week. I don't think Joseph just said. Here's your portion. Here's your portion. Here's your portion. Somebody had to say. How how did you know? How did you know to stock up grain for seven years. When we had all this abundance. And don't you know that Joseph said. Let me tell you. The Lord has been faithful. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah, not the gods you worship, not the sun in the sky, not Pharaoh, a great guy, but he's not God. There is only one God, and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's the God that showed me. And he's the God that provided. And as people from all nations come to receive their grain and go home, they go home with the words. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that did this. This is worldwide evangelism because Joseph stayed faithful. God will provide those opportunities when we're faithful to him. And then the brothers walk in. What an incredible moment. I tried to I tried to think about the, the amazing range of emotions that Joseph had to feel. Uh, the first thing that hit me was sadness over all those lost years. The times he could have had with his brothers. The times of being with his family. The missed opportunities. And then as that hit him, I'm sure, because we've got to think raw human emotion, right? Right? He he felt anger and bitterness that they had sold him without remorse. And he felt those furious feelings of revenge, years of imagining the moment. And now he's got the upper hand times 50. And he's got a desire to play them and toy with them and fool them and accuse them and watch them squirm. The temptation at this point is to show no mercy. You guys did this to me. I'm going to teach you a lesson you'll never forget. And yet. Even as he feels like I told you so. And he sees them bow before them. And he remembers the dream. I told you guys one day. You're going to bow before me. And you were so ticked off at me. That you sold me. Well guess what? It came true. And yet even as he's feeling all those things. his heart is full of love and full of joy because his flesh and blood are here. Finally, his brothers and him are together. What an incredible, unimaginable mix of feelings. And yet, seemingly from the text, without sin, Joseph feels this. And instead of being driven by his anger, see this this morning, this is so important for us relationally, Instead of being driven by anger, he is broken. The godly response to this type of situation when we're offended is to be broken. Of course, he was hurt. Of course, he was offended. Of course, he wanted justice. But more so, he was broken by the coldness and hardness of the human heart that would have done this in the first place and his greatest desire is for restoration now that is the hardest thing that we can do the hardest thing that we can do is put aside our emotion and put aside what is what is justified in our thinking and put aside the desire to say you did it to me and i'm getting my revenge the hardest thing we can do is to put that aside and extend forgiveness. How do we know? Because that's what Christ did. Christ did the hardest thing that God could have done. He sacrificed himself. The gospel is such that we see Christ come down and he gives his life for us, bearing all our sin and he dies and he's dead and he rises again, and he gives us eternal life. God did not have to do that. We did not earn it. He didn't owe it to us, and yet he did it because he loves us. And now Joseph, who is a type of Christ, a picture of Christ, when he has every right to get revenge against these jerks who betrayed him and sold him and hurt him, he does what Christ does. Because he's got perspective about the Lord. Flip through it. Chapter 42, chapter 43, chapter 44. Let me just talk through it very quickly. Because we're going to get to chapter 45. Joseph sets them up. He makes them go back and get Benjamin. And then when Benjamin comes, he sets Benjamin up. And makes it look like he, he committed a crime by stealing. The brothers panic. They're trying to protect Benjamin. Benjamin, more than ever, they realize the result of their past sin. Even though they think Joseph's long gone, chapter 44, they're just torn apart. They're in emotional turmoil. They have no realization that Joseph's right here, that he has them right where he wants them. And honestly, Joseph has orchestrated the events of the situation to the place that from a human standpoint, this is the perfect opportunity to get back at them. There is really, there there are so many legitimate reasons not to forgive them. I want to speak very raw here this morning because some of us may even feel that this week. There are legitimate reasons not to forgive people. We all experience this on some level. but, but, But think about Joseph's residual bitterness as he spent all these years in jail and as he waited alone. In Egypt, with no other Jews around him, constantly living with the residual pain and the accusation and the hurt that they had caused. The mental flashbacks that wake him up at night as he saw his brothers get angry with him and then they pushed him into his pit, a pit laughing at him and mocking him and talking about his little coat of many colors. And then the Midianites come by and he hears them bargain and he hears them take out their wallets and exchange money. Yeah, take them. We don't want them anymore. Can you imagine the flashbacks that he felt? And the jealousy. You guys got to live near dad and and you got... To be a family. And meanwhile I'm down here rotting in some Egyptian cell. Falsely accused. Left for dead. Why did you do that to me? And we get to chapter 42 and they're still not owing up to it. Well, we had a a brother and he died. They're still not admitting what they did. And now this ironic twist as they come and bow before him, and he thinks about the dream and how it's being fulfilled. Now he's the ruler of Egypt. He controls it all. He's distributing the wheat. And how fun would it have been to deny them what they wanted because they had done that to him years before and to say, you stinking Jews, you get out of here. You don't get to enjoy what Egypt has. You go home. I mean, we're talking raw emotion, right? This is not just, well, I don't think I'm going to give you grain. We don't talk like that, right? We feel that raw emotion. He might even say, Listen, the Lord brought you back to me so I could punish you. How many times do we, do we justify and rationalize God's will when it fits our selfish desires? I told you God was going to let me get back at you. That's not holy thinking. God doesn't work that way. God says, You want vengeance? I'll get it. You quit doing this business of trying to do my job. I'll take vengeance on people that have sinned. Instead, look at what Joseph does. Chapter 45, verse 1. Let's read a little more. Joseph couldn't control himself anymore. And he cried, have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. It was all throughout the city the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father alive? Can you imagine their emotion in that moment? Oh, no. His brothers couldn't answer him. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. For they were dismayed at his presence. I love the nuance of the Holy Spirit. They were dismayed at his presence. Yeah. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom he sold into Egypt. Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here because God sent me here before you to preserve life. The famine's been in these land, this land these two years and there's still five years in which there is neither plowing nor harvesting. He repeats it again. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant of the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it's not you who sent me here. Third time. But God It's not you who sent me, it's God. God sent me before you. Notice how many times he uses the word you, but he's saying, it's not you who sent me. You committed the crime. You hurt me. You sold me. He's not trying to dig. He's just reminding them, hey, let's get perspective here. You thought this was your action, but I'm telling you, it was the Lord that did. it." See, Joseph not only has the maturity and insight to see God's purpose, he also has the maturity and insight, listen now, not to resent God's purpose. How many times do we see, well, God's doing this, but I'm not happy about it. And I know God's allowing it, but it sure is unfair. Some people hold on to that for years and decades. Well, I can't believe God did this to me. Listen, that again is not holy thinking. If God moves you in a direction, it's his hand. Have the maturity not only to see it, but not to resent it. He had every reason not to forgive them. But he looks for the perfect opening not to get back at them, but to extend grace and forgiveness without them asking. In fact, it's fascinating. Not once do they say we're sorry. Not before he reveals who he is, and not afterwards. You would think that they would, when he says, I'm Joseph, your brother. Oh, Joseph, I'm so sorry. That's what the text says. That's not me making that up. It says they just stood there. At that point, you think, come on. Say you're sorry. You're just going to stand there and look at me like you're stupid? Come on. I'm Joseph. Don't you want to say, Joseph, we're sorry? He never says that. What a picture of forgiveness. And it may seem foolish to us. Maybe you've had a moment where you had all the power in your hands and you had the opportunity to either just go ahead and ruin what was left of the relationship or to restore it. Maybe the pain is so acute that even as a believer, you don't feel like extending grace, let alone forgive. But look at what Joseph does because it's the pretext to what Christ would do. By the time they walk in, we have to hurry here, Joseph is already prepared to offer mercy and forgiveness. This is not a reaction. He's replayed the scene in his cell and in his palace time and time again, preparing for that moment. But apparently through the years, he had decided that if I ever see them again, I have purposed in my heart to forgive them even though they don't deserve it. This passage is not about the brother's sorrow and repentance. It is about Joseph's love and mercy and willingness to forgive. And that is the hardest thing to do because it is completely humanly unnatural. And yet it is the most spiritually pure thing that we can do. Forgiveness is the ultimate measure of living like Christ and walking by the Spirit. And this passage, and with this we're going to draw to a close, shows us three huge truths about forgiveness that are essential. Turn back to chapter 41 just for a moment, and let's get these three truths and say good morning. Chapter 41 and verse 50. How do we know that Joseph was preparing himself to forgive? How do we know this wasn't just a split decision? Oh, well, I'll let them off the hook. It's great to see them again. I, I, I. I can't, it would be awkward at this point to to hit him. I'll just forgive them. How do we know that wasn't just a reaction? Look at chapter 41, verse 50. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priestess, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all the trouble in all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, these might seem like throwaway verses, little incidental details that the Holy Spirit gives to us. But they are actually the linchpin. They're the key to show what happens in chapter 42 through 45. A year before the famine starts, three years before his brothers show up, Joseph has sons. He names one Manasseh. Manasseh means helping me forget my troubles. I don't know about you, but I need more Manasseh in my life. I need more forgetting about my troubles. Not holding on to grudges, not holding on to past hurts, but just forgetting. And then he needs the second son, the son Ephraim. It means God has made me fruitful. This is a statement of gratitude. God has brought me here. It's been awful circumstances. I've been accused. I've been in jail. But God has brought me here and he has blessed me and his grace has washed all over me. How many need more Ephraim too? More praise, more honor, not just Thanksgiving because we got a turkey on the table, but every morning, praise you, Lord, you've brought me to this place. I don't understand it. I'm in pain right now, but you've brought me here. And bless your name because you are faithful. Three years before the brothers show up, Joseph does this. And three years later, his emotions are put to the test. He has no warning his brothers are coming. It's not like he gets a telegram from Jacob. Hey, your brothers are coming to see you. Can you give them a little grain? Miss you, come home soon. Listen, there's no warning. The door's open. He looks out. Ten brothers are standing there. And his breath catches in his throat. And he has to decide, am I really going to follow through with the decision that I made? He named his children. God help me forget. And God has been gracious. The brothers show up. And he's prepared. Listen, there are three truths about forgiveness. Let me spend two minutes on each. Number one, we have the power to forgive and heal any relationship. We have the power to forgive and heal any relationship. But it requires a heavenly perspective. To be able to forgive, to be able to, to show a heart of mercy, we can't react in our humanity because forgiveness is not something that we manufacture on our own. Philippians 2, three says, Do nothing out of conceit or selfishness, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. We saw it a couple of weeks ago in a study of putting the other person higher. That's never more necessary than, when we're going to forgive. Listen, there are a lot of hurts in your past and there are a lot of hurts in my past. If I said certain names to you, you would cringe. If you said certain names to me, I would cringe. And I can't just say when I hear those names, oh, praise the Lord, I'm going to forgive that person. Because I don't have that capacity in my humanity. But I do when I have the mind of Christ. You can't just forgive the hurt. You have to have the mind of Christ. That's why it's so essential to walk by the Holy Spirit and to live in a way that is under His control because we aren't living for ourselves. We're living for Christ. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who put aside Himself for the joy that was set before Him to sacrifice. That's what you and I are called to every day. It might seem like Joseph is kind of toying with them, that his forgiveness isn't sincere, but he has a purpose. So why does he play the games? Why does he send them back and then bring them back and put the money in and accuse them of stealing? Well, all that was to see if they would finally be honest. If they would own up to it, even privately, and they stand there and talk among themselves, they don't realize that he can hear what they're saying. And Reuben's going, I told you guys, you should have listened to me. You wanted to kill him. We never should have sold him. The God's paying us back for this. They've made the connection between their sin and what's going on. But even now, they don't know it's him. They're standing there talking about their dead brother, and their dead brother's not dead. He's right there. But they're riddled with guilt. They're torn. They're broken. And in that moment, listen now, Joseph finally gets the answer that he's been wondering about for more than a dozen years. Are they really sorry? And the answer is a resounding yes. And Joseph says, I'm ready to forgive. See, this is the second principle. The second key to forgiveness is that forgiveness can only be satisfied when there is true repentance. Forgiveness is only satisfied when there is true repentance. Now we can see, well, they never repented. They never said, I'm sorry. You said that a couple minutes ago. But they didn't know that they could. They didn't know that was the brother that they offended. They didn't recognize them, and Joseph had done that on purpose because he didn't want to hear empty words. He wanted to see genuine actions. And as he watched them be torn and be broken and say, this is because we did that. We're still paying for it. We shouldn't have ever done it. Joseph says, I'm willing to forgive you. But listen, forgiveness cannot be fulfilled unless the prerequisite is met. First and always, there must be sincere repentance. Forgiveness demands genuine sorrow. If you have a relationship that's been broken, it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry, and then to continue to have an attitude and go about your business. There has to be genuine repentance. Repentance doesn't mean, five minutes later, I'm going to do the same thing. How often do we do that with the Lord? Lord, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have sinned. And then we turn around and sin again. Lord, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have sinned. And then we turn around, anybody else do this? I know I do. God says repentance is going this way and then turning around and you never look back. You want to restore a relationship? Have genuine repentance because there is accountability with forgiveness. God says it's only when you confess your sins, in other words, when you admit your guilt, that I will be faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The word word all means to the maximum, but there's a prerequisite. I will forgive all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you confess your sins. Forgiveness has accountability. Joseph doesn't just let them off the hook. He's prepared to forgive them, but only when repentance comes. The Lord's the same way. God is willing and able and ready to forgive even the most vile person on the face of the earth that would spit in the face of Jesus today. God is ready, willing, and able to forgive them when they finally say, I am genuinely sorry for what I've done. And God will say, done. Cleansed forever. I know your heart. So don't mock you're sorry, you will turn from your sin, boom, it's done. You are written in my book forever. Repentance must be proceeding to forgiveness. And when we do that, God removes all record. Ephesians one six says, He freely pours His forgiveness out on us according to the riches of His grace, which He lavishes on us. Can you imagine such a thing? God doesn't hold back. He doesn't say, I'll forgive you a little. He says, I will forgive you completely with abundance. And now, believer, as I've forgiven you, now you forgive one another in the same way. Do you think this morning that God holds one ounce of our guilt? It says, I've forgotten your sins. I've put them as far as the east is from the west. Your sins and iniquities, I remember what? Tell me, no more. So why do we as humans... Continue to say. Remember this. Remember what you did to me. Oh, I know you apologize, but this is this is my trump card. Right now. I'll pull this one out when I need it. Oh, oh, you did that. Here it is. God says, done. Forgive, like I forgive. And you know what, the enemy keeps coming along and saying, Well, what about this? And they said that. God says, I don't remember it anymore. Look at the last thought I gotta pray. The power to extend mercy and truly forgive only comes from the Lord. Joseph wasn't anything special. He was just like you and me. He didn't have supernatural power. We don't see him doing miracles. He's not some kind of crazy guy. He is just like you and me. Hurt interpersonally, betrayed, offended, put in a bad situation, worked his way out of it by God's help, and now has a place where he has a decision. You and I deal with that all the time. But look at why he forgave. Let's read this last verse. He forgave because he saw God's hand in everything that happened. Chapter 45, verse 7, he says, God sent me here to get back at you. That's not what the verse says. God sent me here to prepare the way and to preserve you. He remembered the covenant. He remembered that they were the 12 descendants of God's promise. And look how instrumental his forgiveness is in the fulfillment of God's plan. Now you say, well, God could have fulfilled his plan anyway, and he could do whatever he wanted. But that's not the way God works here. He uses Joseph to be the instrument of forgiveness, so his plan can be implemented. There were 12 tribes of Israel. That wasn't going to work if one of them was in Egypt, strain from the other 11. So while God is sovereign and works, he also says, I'm going to use you as you forgive. Now my plan can be re-implemented. Now you say, well, I don't have that kind of clarity in my life, Paul. I don't always see uh, what what God's plan is going to be. No, but there's always potential because remember we said God's not stopped working. Why does God bring us to this place? Why does God allow what's in our lives so we can live like him? What's the greatest way we can do that? By forgiving. And what happens when we don't? It damages our witness. People look at us and say, you're a Christian? What, why don't you do what Christ did? And it damages our, our walk because we miss out on potential blessing. And it damages our faith and the faith of others. Listen, forgiveness is powerful. It's the most holy action that we can do. And we knew that, know that's true because you barely remember the things that you've forgiven. But everything that hasn't been reconciled with you and somebody else is acute pain. We had a phrase when my kids were growing up. When they do something wrong, they would say, I'm so sorry. And we'd say, we forgive you. And what happens when we forgive? They would say, you forget. I cannot tell you what my son who's sitting here did when he was four. I'm sure there were times where I was like, are you Ah, Anybody feel that? And I'm sure in the moment I thought, I can't believe my offspring has done such an evil thing. How could we ever make this better? I couldn't tell you for a $1,000 what he did when he was four, But I can tell you with clarity and detail and names when people have hurt me and haven't made it better forgiveness is powerful and God has given us the ability to make peace and to restore and to forget it when we forgive like he forgives us I have forgiven you now forgive like I forgiven let's close our eyes I want to challenge you I know I've talked a long time thank you for listening so well but I want to just challenge you in this moment of quiet between you and the Lord what's the relationship that needs to be reconciled if you've offended if you're the one that has caused the pain like Joseph's ten brothers then you need to make that right there needs to be genuine repentance Pride's going to scream. The enemy's going to scream. Everything's going to scream. But it doesn't matter. There has to be repentance. And maybe you're the one that's offended and repentance hasn't come from the person that's offended you. Your heart needs to be softened before the Lord and you need to pray and ask God to help you to be prepared with that forgiveness. Just like Joseph was when the brother's walking unexpectedly. Lord, soften my heart, prepare my heart to forgive. Oh, I pray that that will happen soon. Lord, you have forgiven us beyond measure. We've celebrated it through song this morning. We've celebrated it at your table. We've seen evidence of it in Joseph's life. It's been all through this morning. We have seen the clear evidence of your forgiveness. And Lord, we praise you for it. Lord, forgive us for offending you and for sinning against you. What a travesty that is. By your spirit, help us now convict us to walk in purity, to walk as Christ did. And Lord, the greatest evidence of that will be as we forgive others. Lord, that's really hard for us, but it wasn't even an iota compared to how it was for Christ. Let this mind be in us, Lord, that was in Christ Jesus. Lord, may that be true of me today. This mind that was in Christ, humble, sacrificial, ready to forgive. Lord, restore relationships this week. Bring peace and unity to things that are broken. Give us the courage and the strength both to to repent and to forgive because both are hard. Lord, we will give you honor and praise for what you do because we will constantly see the picture of Christ in all that happens. Give us that heavenly perspective, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.